And if you have your Bibles, let me invite you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews. And by now, if you've been with us uh, for these past 16 weeks, I feel that most of you could come up and give the introduction to this series on the book of Hebrews. Um, I, I tend to not like to repeat myself, but some things have to be repeated. And that is that the book of Hebrews is really a sermon letter. It's a letter that serves as a sermon preaching the gospel to some Hebrew Christians who were thinking about leaving their faith in Christ to return back to their former practice of Judaism. And the sermon letter is trying to capture them and their attention and is trying to teach and preach very clearly how that is the gravest mistake that they could make. To abandon Jesus and all that he is and to go back to all that pointed to Jesus and prepared for Jesus would be missing the mark completely. And so far in these first nine chapters of Hebrews, the author has preached that Jesus is superior to everything the Israelites had experienced in the founding of their faith. Jesus is better than angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Joshua. He's better than all the prophets, even Aaron and the priesthood of the Old Testament. And the author is urging these people to move on to maturity of faith in order that they might be equipped to persevere in a sincere faith and a saving faith. So for three chapters now, the author has emphasized and explained how Jesus and his priesthood is better. That Jesus is perfect and eternal in his priesthood. That he is the full and heavenly reality that all the other priests were merely earthly shadows and copies of, patterns of. And he continues this morning in that same argument, showing how Jesus and his blood of the new covenant is better in every conceivable way. So give your attention to Hebrews 9, verses 16 through 28. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it. Because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. 
It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. As those who I trust are waiting for him and his second coming, let's pray that the Lord would bless our understanding of his first coming. Lord, that is my prayer this morning. Your word is so rich, it's so full. It confounds our earthly wisdom. And so, Lord, would you be our teacher? Would you help us to see, to understand, and to believe what you have done and what you are doing? And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, some of you who may be awakened before sunrise had the experience that I did. I went out to my car before the sun came up and my windshield, since I was parked outdoors, frosted over, iced over. And since we live in South Carolina and we don't get that real often, I don't have an ice scraper in my car. So I do things like turn on the car and crank up that heat and the defrost and then I go feed the cat because that takes a few minutes and then I come back and this morning what happened was very slowly um, two little clean circles on my windshield began to thaw and you just sit and wait a little bit give it a little bit of time and maybe turn the wipers on occasionally and those little circles get a little bit bigger and you can see a little bit more and then it gets bigger and then it gets bigger until finally you can see enough to drive safely to Greenwood, right? So someone asked me a few weeks ago, Pastor Paul, why are you preaching through the book of Hebrews? And I think I would answer it this way. It's my hope that we not only see some of what God is doing, but as through the author of Hebrews and his connecting Old Testament and New Testament, that we begin to see, and I pray this has been true for some of you, we see a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more of that redemptive story 
that God has been doing Old Testament, Old Covenant, and New. Even that we might see the continuity in that work from Old Covenant to New Covenant. Not so much discontinuity as it is God has been working the same plan of redemption and He is revealing it. Just as the windshield gets bigger on a frosted morning, so we see more and more that the Lord has made promises that He is seeing through and it's always been about Jesus. Always been about Jesus. Whether in a shadowy copy type and a fulfilled reality in Jesus, the story has progressed and we see it more and more, especially as this author of Hebrews, the sermon to the Hebrews, helps us see. He helps us see that one thing that God has been doing. Now this morning, continuing in his theme, he's been talking about the priesthood and he's talking about blood. And this morning, the emphasis is on the blood of the new covenant. And so for our children listening and for all of us who are paying attention to God's word, I think we understand that there's something about blood, there's something about bloodshed that gets people's attention. Uh, little children, and in your memories of being a child yourself, you have done this, you've experienced this, you fall off of a bicycle, you skin your knee, your elbow, and you see blood. Maybe a child sees their own blood for the first time. And what do they do? Instinctively, they know, oh, this is serious. And usually they run to mom or they run to dad and they show the blood. Look, I'm bleeding. This is serious, right? I even know a young man who's not a little boy. And he was in a wrestling match recently, and he got grazed across his nose, and he started bleeding everywhere, and had a sense of shock, because it was his blood everywhere. There's something about blood that gets our attention. It's serious. And some of you can't stand the sight of blood. Some of you don't even like me talking about blood. We had someone when I was preaching on blood outdoors who told me they felt faint when I talked about blood so much in a sermon like this one. My brother in high school um, was apparently a good student of the sciences. And when he went to Clemson University his freshman year, he thought he would be a medical doctor. And he took some class and he was exposed to blood and he about passed out. My brother is now a preacher. <laughs> He's not a medical doctor. He preaches about blood, but he doesn't deal with blood. I don't like the sight of blood. There's something about blood that we understand is serious. Blood is serious business. It is at the very heart of life and, in, and results in the loss of it and potential Death. Even movies about blood. I remember watching a movie about early America called Gangs of New York. Not a Christmas movie. Not a Christmas movie. But the exposure to blood and the seriousness of it 
If you've seen that movie, you know what I'm talking about. It, it, it grabs your attention. So do I have your attention? Blood is all about grabbing our attention. And blood is a central theme to the gospel and to the scriptures, Old Testament and New. Blood is serious. Blood is costly. Blood is at the center of life and death. And in the case of the gospel, Old Testament and New, it was about finding a substitute so that your blood would not have to shed. Though your blood was required, there could be a substitute whose blood would shed on your behalf. And so here we come to Hebrews chapter 9, verses 16 through 28, and that is the central theme of it all. Three simple points this morning, and then a very simple hymn to close and tie it all together. And the three points are simply these. Blood shed, blood sprinkled, and blood saved. All from chapter 9, the second half of chapter 9. So first, blood shed, verses 16 through 17. Those passages said that in the case of a will or a testament, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it. Because a will is in force only when someone has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. And so the theme of death, that someone must die, and, and we know this, this is true in our culture as it was in theirs. If you have a will, a last will and testament, what you testify to wanting to be your will executed when you are dead, someone must die. Someone must die. And when someone dies, possessions have to go somewhere. What comes of the wealth and, and the holdings of the one who has died? And so their will is put in writing upon their death. And so when blood is shed, we understand this to be synonymous with both suffering and death. Suffering and death. We refer to it as the lifeblood. When the lifeblood is spent, the life is extinguished. Now, in the Old Testament, and what God has given us to prepare for our understanding of the new, blood shed and death were required for sin. It was the penalty. It was the payment for sin. This is made very clear and visually clear in Genesis chapter 15. I don't have it to put up here, I don't think, but I do have it to read to you. Many of you are very familiar with this passage, but listen to this. Listen to the imagery of blood and the separation of bodies and body parts because it all is to symbolize something that Christmas is all about. So listen with those ears. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? That is the promised land. So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. So Abram brought 
all these to him, he cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite of each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of the prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. And as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Then... When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between those pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Okay, really foreign to us, really unusual what is happening here. This is what is understood to be the cutting of a covenant, the making of a promise. And this is how God communicates to His people that He works. And what happened in this covenant cutting, this covenant making process, is the two parties who are in relationship, a relationship with promises and stipulations, obligations, each of the other, that they would pass between the pieces which symbolized, should I break my part of the promise, may I become as these torn and separated pieces of these beasts. And what we have here is amazing. If we're, if we're so familiar with this passage that we just don't capture the sense of it, I want you to hear it loudly and clearly this morning. But this is the Lord coming down and taking a self-maledictory oath where He is meeting us on His terms and saying, if I don't keep my promise to you, may I be torn and separated as these animals. And for those of you who have ears to hear and eyes to see, you would see that that is exactly what the Lord Jesus will do for us in the new covenant. Not because the Lord didn't keep His promise, but He took the guilt of what sinful man deserved, that it should be our blood that would be shed for sin. But because of God's grace and mercy, He kept the promise for us and He took the curse for us, the curse for our sin. He and His blood were shed in the very way that the animals of the Old Testament and the way their blood was shed. Blood was the necessary, required payment for sin. And in the Old Testament, that person of Jesus was pointed to. It was modeled and copied and represented 
by a substitute animal. Here it was, what, a heifer, a goat, an ox. Later it would be the Lord Jesus Himself. But those were just symbols and types. Those were beasts, and they symbolized the shedding of blood that would be required for sin. Secondly, the author of Hebrews goes on to comment and explain on blood being sprinkled. Now, this was promised in the Old Covenant too. And again, I don't have it on the wall, but give your attention to this. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 24 to 28. The Lord said, For I will take you out of the nations, I will gather you from all the countries, and bring you back into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I'll give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors and you will be my people, and I will be your God, which is his promise and the covenant, covenant refrain we hear Old Testament and New over and over and over again. There was a reference to there, as in Hebrews chapter 9, of this sprinkling of water and particularly of blood. And the author of Hebrews emphasizes that it's sprinkling with hyssop which is referenced numerous times throughout Scripture. Uh, hyssop was this about two feet long shrub-like growth that could very efficiently be bundled together. And essentially it made a big paintbrush. This is what the Israelites were called to use at the Passover, where they would take bundles of hyssop, dip it in blood, and then slap, wash their doorposts. And here the imagery is of the priest and how the Lord called them to take that hyssop and dip it in blood and to symbolically sprinkle people with it. Hyssop enabled that blood to be transferred, to be spread, to be splattered, to be sprinkled. And here, all of this comes together into the imagery of being covered and saturated with a cleansing agent, which in this case is blood to make something ceremonially clean. And it was to be a far-reaching agent. It wasn't for one person, for two people. It was to be sprinkled on all the people, it said. All those who would gather in the presence of the Lord for His worship. That is Israel. And that is Israel and her households. And so that blood would be dipped and it would be sprinkled. There's some for you and there's some for you and there's some for you. And it was the whole people of Israel. All of their families, all of their members were to be covered with this blood. And this was picturing how the Lord's redemption, how His ministry was to work on all of His 
family and through all of their families. The ordinary way that God would work. In that way, you could say God's grace, you can see it's always been generous, far-reaching, and inclusive. Blood sprinkled. And then thirdly, he talks about being blood saved. Verses 23 through 28. There he says, It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence." Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again. The way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. And here it is. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Three things I think that are important we need to understand. Verses 25 to 26 emphasize that Christ has died once. He doesn't die over and over and over again. This is death once and for all. Finality, closure to all of that bloodshed required in the Old Covenant. Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice which eventually worked into the people, surely this sense of when will we ever have to stop shedding this blood and making these sacrifices? Listen, it's hard sometimes for us to get up in the morning and to be at church by 10.30 a.m., right? Ah, it gets a little old. Imagine if you're having to deal with sacrifices over and over and over again. It's not that hard to get out of bed and be here at 10.30 in the morning, y'all. This was laborious. This was burdensome. This was difficult. And the thought that it finally ends, the bloodshed ends, the burden ends because of one sacrifice that was sufficient. That's what the author of Hebrews is emphasizing. And he says that that one sacrifice is for all time. It's for all time. It covers all the ages which really means that all those sacrifices in the Old Covenant, they were merely symbolic, pointing to the one sacrifice that fulfilled them all. So he died once for all time. And then here's the curveball, brace yourself. For many people. He doesn't say for all people. He says for many people. One sacrifice for all time, for many people, verse 28. And here we can only grasp what the Scriptures have said, Old Covenant and New. 
And that is that God has a particular people He has been pursuing and saving since day one. It's this mysterious people called His church. And we don't know who they are, but He does. And He came and He died for them. Those who would be His church. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 28, Jesus Himself said of His blood, This is My blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so we are a blood-saved people when our faith is in Jesus and in His blood and in His righteousness. In Christ Jesus, the Lamb of God, our Emmanuel, and the shedding of His blood, it comes to conclusion, it ceases, because the final sprinkling with blood has occurred. And the saving of His people from the guilt of their sins has been secured. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. That's the gospel of Christmas that we believe. That Christ is the propitiation for our sins. Wrath has been removed because justice has been satisfied. Debt has been paid. Full atonement has been made. That's the Christ child. That's the Christ of Christmas. And so in every way, this new covenant is better. It's better because Jesus is better. And He, in His work, has made all things new. He's made all things better by His blood, fulfilling the promises of God to His people. So how could you ever, the author of Hebrews would say, give all of that up and go back to what the shadows and types were pointing to? How could you abandon what it was all about to go back to the lesser way, the older way, the more inferior way of what God has given us. I'm sure we've sung it in recent weeks. I don't remember which Sunday, and we're probably going to sing it Christmas Eve. But Charles Wesley's hymn, Heart the Herald Angel Sings. Listen to this line from that hymn of Jesus. Mild He lays His glory by, Born that we no more may die. Born to raise us from the earth. Born to give us second birth. Born that man no more may die. Born so that we would not have to bleed for our own sins. That's what that's saying. It's the promise of the substitute. The sacrifice who would come for God's people. That's what we're singing. That's what the herald angel is announcing. It's that Jesus has come. The sacrifice, the blood sacrifice has come for the sins of the people. He was born for us. And in everything in the book of Hebrews, the author is always pointing those people forward. He's saying, don't go backward. It's about moving forward in faith looking forward to the promises of God and what He is doing for His church. Even so that in the end of this passage, in verse 28, He points them forward. 
to the second coming of Jesus. Did you hear it? That Jesus is coming again a second time. And this time, not coming to bear sin in the sin of the people, but to bring those people salvation. And so there, he's pointing us forward, anticipating the day, saying, you should be looking forward in your faith. You should be leaning forward in your faith. These are the very words of that reflection that we had uh, this morning. More words from Charles Wesley where we heard this, speaking of that day to come that we're looking forward to, it says, Lo, He comes with clouds descending once for our salvation slain. Thousand, thousand saints attending swell the triumph of His train. Alleluia! Christ returns to earth to reign. And those dear tokens of His passion still His dazzling body bears, cause of endless exultation to His ransomed worshipers. With sense of wonder, gaze we on those glorious scars. You see what He's saying? He's reminding us to look forward to the day when Jesus comes a second time in glory to bring the salvation He's purchased for His church. Now that's a heavy sermon, a ton of content in everything the author of Hebrews preaches, but he's applying it to the people. He's applying it to us, and it's to be applied at Christmas. Christmas is about blood, about one who would be born that we would no longer have to die for our sins. It's beautiful. It's hard to imagine singing about blood being beautiful, but when it's the story of someone else's blood being spent for your own, it has to be beautiful. It becomes beautiful. We're going to close this morning with a, a hymn. This is a hymn of Isaac Watts. It's a beautiful hymn. It's a very simple hymn, but it captures so well the meaning and teaching of Hebrews chapter 9 that I wanted us to sing this and, and perhaps be more and more familiar with it. Um, but here you, you find these words, and it references that old covenant way of bloodshed and all those sacrifices. And it says this, Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away the stain. But Christ... The heavenly Lamb takes all our sins away. A sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. And then the third stanza. This might be helpful to explain. Uh, in, in Leviticus and Exodus, we're told that the one offering the sacrifice, the animal whose blood would be shed, he was to lay his hand on that animal on the head of that animal. And in that way, he was identifying all of his own guilt, all of his own sin with that animal. In a sense, transferring that guilt upon the animal that would die. And so the third stanza of Isaac Watts' hymn plays off of that and says, My faith would lay her hand on that dear head of thine. Thine being the Lord Jesus. While like a penitent I stand, 
and there confess my sin. The Lord Jesus is the Lamb of God, the true Lamb of God. And He invites us by faith to lay our hands on His head as He takes our guilt and gives us His righteousness. It's a beautiful hymn. It's a Christmas hymn. Let's pray and then let's sing it as an act of worship. Lord, we give you thanks for what you have done for your church in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we celebrate Him, His life, His death, and His resurrection, Lord, would you work a faith in us that overcomes our fears, that gives us strength to live by faith, and to persevere in faith all the days of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.